So we're taking this thing live. And you can come and see us at the Country Music Hall of Fame on August 20th, uh, where we will be interviewed and have a conversation with uh, Jason Owen, one of our big shots, and Shane McAnally, one of the great songwriters in town, and both um, executive producers of this uh, series. And uh, we're going to be talking to them live and having lots of laughs and food and drinks at the Country Music Hall of Fame, August 20th. Also, there'll be T-shirts there for sale. <laughs> Check our social media for details so that you don't get the dates confused. And I hope that I don't get sick and we have to cancel it again. Hi, I'm Jerry House. You know, I've known these shady ladies for a very long time, and I love to hear their stories, but you have to take them with a grain of salt. Now, these tales and opinions are not for the faint of heart. And this podcast is not suitable for children, but then neither is the music business. So light one up and lighten up, because you're listening to the Shady Ladies of Music City. Is this on? Are we doing it now? What are we saying again? I'm Evelyn. And I'm Susan. Some people refer to us as... The Shady Ladies of Music City. This chapter, or this pod, or this cast, or whatever, is called The Big Shots. And it's about the uh, really important and influential people in country music while we were there. And I would have to say that the uh, nicest person to us out of everybody was Irving Azoff. And people might find that hard to believe, but Irving is so artist-oriented. He, you know, when we got into Asylum, no one wanted us. You know, the men in town all hated it. Irving fought for us, you know. uh, The guy, who was that guy, Roger... It was Roger Ames. And Irving called him up and said to him, you should keep these girls. They have really good ideas. And, uh, and you know, at that point, Warner Brothers had an armed guard in the front of the building that would, you know, you couldn't go in unless the armed guard saw you. But Irving was so defensive for us. He defended us with Sylvia. He defended us with everybody. And I have to say... You know, I don't was, think it was that he defended us. We didn't do anything bad. He was just very supportive and, and encouraging. But Irving was so instrumental in helping us and so gracious. He and, was so gracious, and he would come down, and, you know, he would go to work out with me at Vanderbilt Plaza, and he would take everybody to eat at the Elliston Place Soda Shop or, you know, Ruth Chris or wherever. And, you know, he he was doing the project with the Eagles at that time. What was it called? Till Hell Freezes Over? With uh, all the uh, country acts singing songs of the Eagles. No, no, no. We did that project with Irving before the whole Warner Brothers thing. Yeah, but, but the what, Asylum thing, because we did the publicity, that was called... Um, well, whatever it was called. He was very gracious and brought Don Henley down, and I did tons of interviews with Don Henley. And he was very gracious, too. He was just charming. He met with everybody from, you know, USA Today to... Varnell Hackett, not Varnell Hackett. Varnell. Varnell, and uh, he met with everybody and did and interviews, and at that point, they still thought they would never get together. And uh, I remember we used to sit around and talk with him about, you know, Dad, why don't you think the Eagles will ever get together? Because I didn't know that he and uh, Glenn had had the big fight, and also with, um, who was the other guy in the Eagles at that point? The great guitar player was so phenomenal. Who? Um. But I think we're we're mixing up years here. 
because we did the uh, common thread. Common thread. With, the song yeah, so of the Eagles. So kind of back up a little bit and cut it off because she's, you know, overlapping like 10 years here. We did common thread first, which is how you got to know Irving. And how we got to know Dawn. Yeah, but that led into years later when we were at Asylum, we had a relationship with uh, Irving, you know, that where he was very helpful. He knew us, you know, much more so than the other people. And the Common Thread project was um, the first thing that we worked with. Well, we well, represented It was the first time the Eagles had worked together in a long time either. And I remember Travis Tritt did Take It Easy with the band. And uh, I remember when the Eagles did their show in L.A. with MTV, the first time they had been together in years. And I went with Irving and uh, I think James Stroud at the time because he was the head of Giant. And we went to see them at the Universal Amphitheater and people were so overwhelmed to hear them singing together. The audience was just weeping. You know, you could hear them singing Hotel California and Desperado. It was really moving. And Irving was very moved too. They were his they were his guys. And uh anyhow, he was just wonderful to us. And I've never really had a ch I've tried to thank him, but you know, he doesn't really feel like he needs thanks, but I really feel that he does. He was fantastic. I will always love Irving Azoff. Uh the one who introduced us to Irving was Joel Katz, another big shot. Well, Joel's been a really good friend and uh, for many, many years, really, when you think about it. How many years have we known Joel? It's got to be... I've known him since we did that thing with Coach Glanville in Atlanta. And I was with Doug Stone. And I was with Nancy Russell, who was with Travis Tritt. And Jesse and Waylon came waddling in. And in came this little guy with a briefcase, very cute, and a long coat. He always wore long camel hair overcoats. And we introduced ourselves and we became friends and that was Joel. So we became really good friends with him because of uh, Willie and Farm Aid too. And he was, we were all together at all the Farm Aids. Well, and uh, Willie's manager, Mark Rothbaum, uh, is very, very close with Joel. And we were all very close, uh, me and Susan and Mark and Joel, and, you know, traveled a lot, went to a lot of shows, uh, plotted and planned a lot. Uh, but, you know, Joel's been a huge power force in the music business forever, and he has an amazing history where he, I think his first client was uh, James, Brown. James Brown, if you can imagine. And, you know, he has, you know, George Strait and Willie. And, and Jimmy and, Buffett. And, and he had Bobby Jones. Brown. And he had, you know, all those guys. Uh, and he's based in Atlanta, but, you know, he covers, you know, the world. But, you know, for Nashville artists, that you know, and, and business people, they've gravitated maybe a lot to his representation being close by. Uh, but Joel's a very, very kind-hearted uh, man. You know, he speaks very gently with people. He's not one of these screamers, uh, unlike some of the other people that we've known. I don't think that Joel screams a lot. Well, not like other people that we know. <laughs> I mean, but Joel Joel's like a low-tone kind of, you know, it becomes like a deathly, you know, I better listen to this thing because he's not, you know, ranting. People are afraid of him. When you mentioned Joel's name, especially about 10 to 15 years ago, it made a huge difference. And when Sylvia Roan, our beloved Sylvia, was looking for people to run asylum, to take over asylum, 
she came to Joel to find her people. That was always his role, finding find executives. He- yeah. And he did all the time. And uh, apparently he had taken a lot of people in to meet her. Virtually everybody in town had been interviewed by Sylvia except for us. And then finally he decided to schlep us in, never thinking that Sylvia was going to like us. Well, we weren't interested. You know, we sort of did it as a courtesy to Joel and just because whenever he was in town, we would try to have, you know, dinner or something. Lunch or something with him. And... uh you know, so it was a great idea. We'll go see, you know, the Sylvia person, and lo and behold. Uh, well, I had, I was managing Laurie at the time, and Evelyn had a huge, you know, PR company and had tons of people. So, you know, the whole idea of working for a corporation was kind of an anathema to us. But Joel was like, nah, come on, girls. You'll really like it. It'll be good. You'll have fun. You'll get a car allowance, which <laughs> That's we did. Right. <laughs> that was what I lived for, the car allowance. He was really sweet about it. And uh, Sylvia was really sweet, too. And we got the job. And, of course, everyone in town was shocked. I I tell you, I've never gotten a contract that fast in my life. Joel got us the the contract was done in, like, two days. Because he had it ready for whoever was going to step in. (laughs) All he had to do was change the names, and there we were. (laughs) You know, he was very sweet about it, and we got it. And he introduced us to Irving at this very famous restaurant in New York called Coco Pazzo which was a big Italian restaurant where, you know, all music business people would go in. But you could go in and you could see Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown. And I remember Mark was in there once with Willie. Remember when David Anderson Yeah, we were all in there. I think it was after the uh, Grammy Awards. It's something that we were doing, I think, at Radio City Music Hall, and we all went to dinner there. And Mark was also exceedingly nice to us when Evelyn was doing Willie's publicity and we did the Farm Aid publicity. That's how I met Irving. He came in and Joel introduced us. I was with KT at the time, sitting at the table. And uh, it was a fabulous restaurant. I wish there was another restaurant like it. It's closed now, Joel told me. And we had dinner there with Sylvia. And the whole Warner Brothers Brothers, uh, team to kind of find out about us uh, so that they could meet us and they found out that Susan had been in prison and it was just, you know, And the guy that was head of finances, Marty, was like, keep her away from the money. (laughs) And I said, I'm not going into the money. And, you know, I was not an embezzler or a thief or anything. I was just a writer and a a drug dealer. (laughs) (laughs) Drug dealer. But, uh, you know, Irving was so sweet the first time we met him, I couldn't believe it. And his son, Jeffrey, is now a huge manager in L.A., too. And his daughter, Allison, was also in the business, but then she had kids. And Irving adores family, and he has grandchildren that he just worships. And he had us to dinner out at his house in Beverly Hills several times. And, and Shelly you know, was very gracious. And, and the, you know, Jeffrey was just like a little boy at the time. That was Cameron. Cameron. Cameron was the baby. Jeffrey was like, you know, 15 or 14. That's still a boy, and, you know, from an old person's point of view. (laughs) But Irving had us out to the house, and, you know, and I went out there a couple times. He was so gracious. You know, the people in Nashville were never that gracious, in my opinion, as Irving and Joel and even Mark was. Mark was very gracious, too. I think it's also one of the things that, you know, the more power a person has quite often, you know, the, the more gracious they can be and, uh, you know, they realize they have they have this kind of power and if they handle it well, then, you know, I think great examples of, of people that have a lot of power at this moment in time and 
seem to be really upright are people like, you know, Clint Hyam. Jason. Uh, Jason Owen. Uh, Joe Galante. Well, I, you know, one of the interesting things about Joe was, you know, shortly after I came to town, um, I think Joe called me and took me to lunch at a, at a big hangout at the time called Maud's. And, courtyard. Uh, Maud's Courtyard. Um I always was very impressed with the fact that Joe made a point of getting to know people in town that had moved into, you know, a position that he might, you know, want to deal with at some point. And I've watched him through the years do that. And he's, you know, very methodical about, you know, having lunch, getting to know a person, creating a relationship and maintaining it, at least, you know, with a, a yearly lunch or twice a year lunch. And, you know, I think that Joe as probably the most powerful record person in Nashville for so many years, has always made a huge effort to be nice to people. He'll walk across the room to say hi to the mailroom guy, and, you know, he really extends himself to remember, you know, your spouse's names and things like that. I have tremendous respect for the way that Joe Galante, you know, handles people in town. And he was like that with the artist, too, because he was Laurie's uh, record label person, and he was so nice to her. And back in the day, you know, at Christmas time, you know, the record label people got everybody great gifts, Joe knew Laurie's family. He had known her deceased husband, Keith Whitley, and that gave them a huge bond. And uh, he had, you know, Joe was the one that had all the record label people over to his house for events. And, you know, Fran would have huge tables set and various themes at the house going on. And Joe was very, very good about that. You know, truthfully, Luke was one of the most helpful to us when we did the album Burn Your Playhouse Down, which had that iconic cover of George with the haircut that he had smoking a cigarette, which was a big uh, issue for him should he do a cover photograph smoking a cigarette. Anyhow, Luke was phenomenal because MCA had done an album called uh, The Bradley Barnes Session, and they had a lot of these... They had George recording with a lot of the artists that we wanted to have duets with. Well, it was a duet album, the Bradley Barn, and a lot of the artists had done a second song. And what Luke did, which was an amazing uh, act of generosity, he let us have the outtakes from the Bradley Barn. He let us have about eight of them. And uh, I don't know if any other label head would have done that or not. Luke, you know really looked at intellectual properties different than anybody else. He was not greedy in the way he looked at intellectual properties. And he felt that music should be for everybody. Because Joe had a way of selling records. Well, you know, yeah. And, you know, he was a really good record man. And he was very much, I think, about, uh, you know, uh, empowering his staff. He wasn't great from my point of view as an independent uh person publicist because he didn't like to hire people you know he very rarely hired me for anything in fact I was hired the company was hired to do the Roy Rogers project and I think at some point you know Joe just paid us off you know he liked to control the deal and you know it included every aspect of his company's efforts whether it was artwork or it was publicity or if it was radio he wanted the control thing and when you have outside people 
you know, or particularly a company like mine where I was very involved in all the different aspects of an artist's career, you know, he didn't really like that that much. And that's not taking anything away from him. We didn't work together that often. We knew each other, but... Well, see, but with Laurie, he wasn't like that. He empowered me a tremendous amount with Laurie as her manager. That's different. You were a manager. And he empowered me hugely to do things with her and to cut deals. And, you know, because I cut a deal with Ballantyne and we did a book on her, you know, Forever Yours Faithfully about uh, Keith Whitley. And I had gotten a huge advance in the day, like $750,000, and cut a deal with uh, Walmart where we would have in-stores. The book would be there, and I had the record put inside the book. And Joe was very, very supportive of that. And I met him through Stan Morris, who was also a big manager. Stan had a huge company. And he had, at that time, Lori Morgan, Eddie Rabbit, Roger Miller, uh, Restless Heart, KT Oslin. Who else did he have? Doesn't matter. I don't know, but he had a lot of people. And uh, he was very good friends with Joe. And that's how I asked Joe, how did I meet him? And I met him through Stan Morris. Of course, you know, it didn't end that well for me because I ended up managing... Oh, Ronnie Millsap was another one. And I ended up managing Laurie, but I didn't take Laurie away from Stan. Joe, what's his name? Maury? Jim Maury did. And uh, I felt better that I didn't. You know, the music business was just hopping back then. Everybody had acts and dinners and radio dinners and... You know, radio was hugely powerful then. I don't know how powerful it is today, but I'm assuming it can, judging from the Dixie Chicks, it can kill an artist's career. And, you know, I don't notice them really making anybody's career anymore. Well, anybody they play, they make a career, but... Sort of, but they never get as in involved as they used but to. But Joe's thing, you know, with the manager is that you're his partner. So, you know, and he's always were. going to be very supportive if you're the partner. If you're an independent publicist, you're almost like, not the competition, but, you know, you're an outside voice. And he wants all the voices and the label to be on the same page. And, well, yeah, and I felt like his power. partner... Well, yeah, you were the manager. And I was the manager, and I felt like his partner, and he, he was very, very supportive. And of Laurie, and he was always there when we needed him. And there were women with power, too. I mean, there was Frances Preston, who was certainly powerful, uh, running BMI, and there was... Uh, she was the most powerful woman in town, because when people first came to town, you know, a lot of songwriters, like Shel Silverstein said to me, when he first got into BMI, he thought it was like a big honor. I got into BMI? I can't believe it. He didn't realize that he was making BMI money because nobody really understood about BMI and ASCAP back then. He was like, oh, my God, I met, you know, I got in. And Francis knew, Francis more than anyone I ever knew, knew how to be with the songwriters and the artists. You know, big advances were given back then. And, uh... Frances was wonderful to everybody. Well, and she had a lot of power, and they moved her up to New York, which was a real testament to the power, you know, in those days that they took a woman out of Nashville and, and put her in the head of something in New York. And uh, Connie Bradley, um, who ASCAP. ran ASCAP, 
Donna Hilly who ran tree, but these were different kinds of women. It was a different kind of time. They were southern bells almost, you know, and very... Not Francis. No, but uh, Connie and uh, Donna were very kind of southern and... Uh, very pretty, very feminine. Francis was very pretty, but when she walked in a room, you didn't think that, you know, a Barbie was there, you know. You thought that, like, you know, uh, who could I compare Francis to? Not Barbara Stanwyck, but somebody more like that. And she was tough, but she got her thing done all the time. And, Joe and, Con would... and Connie and, and Donna did it in a, a very different way, but equally effective. You know, they sort of, you know, tied your hands in velvet as opposed to, you know, beating you with a chain and uh, whip. But they, they were special women and they had a very unique position of power and they really made an effort to get along with everybody. They they played the politics much better sometimes than the guys because the they were very discreet about how they made deals go down. And Just ask Kenny about Connie Bradley. I think that she helped to make his career. And they would have lunches for radio and around the uh, BMI and uh, around their uh, events and around CRS, and they would have lunches. And if you got asked to sing at one of those lunches, it was a huge to-do. And they worked a lot with the publishers. Well, of course, and they were, you know, very good at discreet whispering on the phones to all the label heads and getting deals set up and, you know, keeping the peace and moving, you know, the chips forward. There's nobody like that now. I miss the days when that went on. But I miss the days of those women. There's no women like that now. There's no woman head of BMI. There's no woman head of ASCAP. There's no women giving big advance. Nobody gets advances anymore. Those days are over. Well, we don't know that. I'm sure people are getting advances. They don't get big advances anymore because nobody makes as much royalties as they used to. Before then, if you the, had... The money's um, in the publishing. That's who? where the royalties are. The money's in the songwriting. I know, but stuff. back then, BMI, that's where the money was too, on the airplay. And it still is. Well, I don't, no, it's not. Well, it is, but, you know, it's more in the uh, streaming and all that. Publishing companies have not hurt been hurt through you know this the songwriters have been hurt but the publishers and you know i can't think of any women publishers that were hugely successful or oh important. there were a lot of them like who like steel of steelia frolic yeah like uh there were a lot of women because publishing was one of the areas that women could thrive in that were, you know, easier to get into. But they were always into. run by the people in New York or L.A. And they were like little token people running around down that here. That was like us running asylum. Right. We were little token people. <laughs> so and Sylvia was up there. And she, you know, controlled everything. And she still does. Now she's the head of Epic. I think we should talk some more about, like, Clint and Jason. Well, we haven't that. gotten to them yet. So, you know... <laughs> well. Let's get to them now. <laughs> the two biggest managers that we were friendly with are Clint Heim, who manages Kenny Chesney, and he was in business with Dale Morris, and they managed Alabama, and uh, now they do Old Dominion, and uh, I don't know who else they do now. But Clint well, it is, doesn't matter. No, because yeah, cause it's Kenny. all about you know the specialness of the people that we're talking about you know clint's very special jason's very special clint was the nicest most generous man that i've ever met in the music business he was the most generous you know he would help anybody i mean really anybody that he could and we i met him because kenny used to open for laurie and uh 
that's back when first when he was signed with Phil Walden to uh, Capricorn. Capricorn. Clint took Kenny from being, you know, an opening act to arguably one of the biggest stadium acts in the world. Nobody sold as many tickets at stadiums as Clint did. And Clint really had a strategy. And he had a, you know, they did all their promotion in-house. And he worked with Louis Messina. And they did, you know, Clint was really a wonderful, wonderful person and really smart. Well, the interesting thing about Clint, too, is that he's such a fan of country music and he's so knowledgeable about the history. You know, as somebody who's as busy as he is with the kind of demands that are on his time and, and his attention, he still manages to find the most obscure weird photos of Tammy Wynette or Barbara Mandrell that he will send us with little notes and uh well he managed the man Barbara Mandrell and the Mandrell sisters yeah and he but he just loves old country and you know he'll find some weird like little thing that he'll send and um I think his love of the music and wanting to help people in town you know has been a very you know sweet and interesting thing to watch and uh um, he's been very generous in kind of sharing his wealth or making like a little difference. Like one of the girls that used to work for me, she was recently out at a restaurant on her birthday and she didn't know Clint that well, but said hello when he figured out it was her birthday and he picked up the check and she was so touched, you know, and then he left and she, and she didn't have a chance to thank him because he was gone when she realized that he had picked up the check for her and her party and she told me that when she left, she just cried because, you know, she's, you know, was so touched by how sweet he was. And she's older now. And, you know, sometimes the business has changed so much that, you know, it made her very emotional that, you know, somebody was remembering her. And, you know, Clint has that ability. I remember once I did a birthday party for Susan's 60th birthday party. Clint was there, you know, obviously he was there, I invited him, but he brought all kinds of just incredible wines and stuff to my house. And I mean, he's a real wine connoisseur, so it wasn't just like, you know, kind of good wine. It was great wine. And uh, and a lot of young artists will go to him for advice because he gives them really good advice. And uh, he will take time out for anybody. We did a deal with Kenny and Clint for MasterCard. And we did, you know, shows with him. And, you know, first of all, Clint is hilariously funny. He's one of the funniest people I ever met. And uh, he, you know, we would go and we would be in like the casinos and stuff. And I remember one time I had spent all my money on the slot machines. Evelyn spent all her money. Clint spent all his money. We were and totally we were, broke. We and were getting ready to in leave. a private plane with We had no, no money. money to take a taxi. <laughs> we had no money to do anything. I don't remember how Clint got the money. <laughs> but, uh, and he has really good taste in music. He and I can listen to music and uh, he will pick the, and he helps Kenny pick his songs. And he has really, really good taste in music. When he was younger, he was in musical theater. And uh, he still knows all those songs. He, he and I can sing every show tune ever known to man. And he has a great voice. But Enklin's given us a lot of opportunities since he we has. sort of stepped out of the business a bit. You know, we 
did the MasterCard deal with uh, Kenny, and uh, we also did the 3D movie. <laughs> oh, right. We did the 3D movie with Kenny. <laughs> and uh, Joe Thomas, a guy that we uh, did a lot of uh, soundstage projects with. Uh, but that was a great opportunity to get to do that. Uh, and it was the trust amongst all the people. I mean, you know, Clint obviously trusted us, and Kenny trusted Clint. And to some degree, us, I guess. But nonetheless, it happened. And uh, it was, you know, a fun thing for a couple of years. I don't know what happens to those 3D movies now. I don't think anybody does them anymore. But we sure spent a lot of time doing it. And Joe spent weeks shooting it. Well, they were concert, you know. Concert films, footage. So what can you... And trying to splice them all together and all that. So, But Clint is a very special man. And then there's Jason. I remember when... Uh, I'm Luke Adam. and Lauren came to town and well, Luke uh, was here. Yeah, but Lauren moved here and I heard from a lot of friends, you know, in New York and places, you know, to get to know Lauren. I remember we all had lunch at the Palm, didn't we? With Fletcher. Yeah. But I became really good friends with Luke and Lauren and I used to go over to their house all the time. They had a fabulous house where Taylor Swift now lives over on uh, Harding. One night I was over and I met a lot of J uh, Luke's staff over there because he too, you know, all the heads of the labels invited their staff over for holidays and dinners and Luke uh, was the head of Universal. He also had that fantastic label called uh, Lost Highway. Lost Highway, which had uh, Lucinda Williams and it had. Uh, oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? He had some songs, soundtracks, and he had Ryan Adams and uh, other people that are, and, and, you know, great, not unknown, but, you know, Americana artists on it. And one night I was over there and there was this tall, young, good-looking guy, another good-looking guy, and he was funny too. And I talked to him and I found out he used to work for Aaron Spelling. And he had a lot of funny stories to tell. And we, you know, traded stories. Lo and behold, it was Jason Owen, who was the head of his marketing department. And through Jason, I came to be familiar with the music of Leanne Womack. He did a huge album with Reba where she cut a brilliant song with Ronnie Dunn. And Jason also is wild about music and has really good taste. So we became good friends. And one day I was sitting at Nashville having breakfast with him. And he said, Suze, you have to come. Moz, he calls me Moz. He says, you have to come out to the car and listen to this girl that I found. She's unbelievable. And everybody wants to sign her, but I think she's going to go with me. So I went out to the car and he played Casey Musgrave singing the first from the first album, Merry-Go-Round. She was so unbelievable, and I had never heard anybody like her in country music before. And Jason said she's going to be really big, and I knew that she would be. And he took her, and, you know, she was one of those acts that ra country radio did not embrace. And I begin to think that country radio never embraces the really brilliant ones. But uh, he worked it, and she can sell out shows in Europe. She can sell out shows at the Apollo and she's won all these Grammys, and she is a huge star. And I credit not only to her talent, but to Jason. Jason, you know, was working at Universal and uh, had had that background in Hollywood and uh, Aaron Spelling and everything. When I first met him, you know, it was one of our topics because I used to um, handle out of New York Dynasty, the TV show. So I was certainly, you know, familiar with uh, Aaron Spelling and all that. 
And Jason was, you know, really brilliant at his job at Universal, but, you know, he was smart enough to realize that it's a really good thing to morph out of that position into a management position. And um, Shania Twain was the first one who asked him to be her manager. And he got Shania to go to Las Vegas, where she had never, ever done it before. But that was a great move on Jason's part. And I remember him talking to Susan and indirectly to me about, you know, whether he should make that move or not make that move. Because you knew that Jason, you know, was a contender to be the head of a label or any kind of job he wanted to pick out in the business. And he was. They wanted him to run Sony when Joe Galante left, and they went through a whole thing there. But and I personally think, you know, it's always smart if you can control your own destiny, and managers make tons of money, and label heads make a lot of money too, but managers can hang in there forever and, and control their fate as opposed to no matter who, what, you know, company you're the president of, even if you're at the very top in New York and L.A., you can still be dismissed in a matter of a minute or two by a board of directors or whoever is involved. But when you are a manager and it's your company, you know, you decide what your fate is as opposed to a bunch of other people. And I thought that Jason was really smart to make that move into management. He immediately got Shania Twain as his client and he went on and got her back out in the public eye, which, you know, she had not been for a long time, you know, at her choice put her in the Vegas thing, and I think that, you know, you look at his company and his track record. Well, see, Jason reminds me a lot of Mark Rothbaum, what Mark did with Willie. Like, Willie could have been like a Whalen or something like that, but Mark took Willie and got him into films, got him to record with, like, Julio Iglesias, took him to Europe, and that's what Mark has done with Casey. He's changed the course of her career and really opened up her vistas. And I think that's that's what Mark did with uh, Willie. And, you know, Willie could have just been another brilliant songwriter like Hank Cochran writing in Austin if it wasn't for Mark. Well, and I think the thing that Jason also did was when he came here with his, you know, uh, L.A. background, and it was right kind of like as the business was getting a certain level of sophistication, which it hadn't had, Part of my success was that I came from New York and I knew different photographers and I knew different ways of doing things. Jason came with that same kind of, you know, background in that he knew who the good hair and makeup people were. He knew all the talent bookers in New York. He knew... Uh, the Oprah people. He knew uh, fashion designers that you could get to make clothes for nothing, you know, to, you know, to trade off visibility. People in Nashville didn't think that way. Uh, you know, if they were going to have a dress, you know, they would go to a department store and buy, you know, something to wear to the CMAs. It really wasn't until that kind of time uh, when Jason came to town that people realized you could borrow from designers. I mean, it was something well, that if no, you lived in... Well, they knew in, that before because of uh, stylists that came into town. Yeah, but the stylists, you know, were not digging very deep to find most anything. Jason, you know, kind of altered well, Jason that. Jason knew the designers, and he would get, like, you know, if he wanted something for Casey, he could go, I would say Valentino, but not Valentino, somebody like that, and get the clothes from them and get Casey to meet them. And normally when these people meet the artists, they love them. Well, and they, they, a lot of opportunities open up. You know, if a designer likes a particular body type and it's a celebrity, he can get help get it into the fashion magazines and, 
you know, that this is his muse or whatever. And all of that stuff helps to, you know, build a person's uh, image and reputation. And see, whereas Clint had Kenny, Kenny was never a big clothes horse. So Kenny would never go to designers and stuff. Clint had phenomenal taste too. But when you have a male artist, it's different than when you have a female lead artist and Jason also having Shania. So it's very different to have a male artist than a female artist. People who become really successful in the music business are people who love music. They love almost all kinds of music and they have special artists that they like and they know more about music. I would say Clint knows more about music than almost anybody I know. And they are people who, and, and you know, they all, Joe loves music, Galante loves music, uh, Jason loves music, Irving loves music, they all love music. Well, they're all in the uh, the business because they love music, you know, it's what normally kind of draws you in, but... I would also say I think that you have to have a vision of where you want to go. It's not enough to just kind of take care of today. You do need to have a vision, you know, for your artist or for yourself or whatever the case, you know, may be for a company. Well, you can have whatever vision you want, but the music business goes the way it goes because you can have a vision, but somebody else could have an artist like Sam Hunt that comes out with a hip-hop song that had he continued on, he could have helped to change the business. I don't know where he went. But that whatever happened... But that was his vision. That was his vision. And goodbye. Well, I don't know that he's done yet. I would imagine that he'll come back with something pretty strong. I mean, he's had the time to kind of create something. But there's not like that, that you know, one uh, quality that you find in everybody. You know, it'd be easy to say, you know, kindness or, you know, empathy or... But some of these guys are just real bastards. I mean, they, they yell and they scream and they're heartless and they're cruel and they can make you squirm and all of those things. You know, they become sort of fearless in that, you know, I can out yell you any day of the week and, and it becomes that kind of shouting match in certain situations. So I don't see like a consistent quality in anybody but but the music loving and the, you know having love a lot of these people were like when they were young they loved music and they were all buying records when they were young but you should expect that if you're in the music business working the road when they were younger most all the people that end up in top positions worked either in sales or in promotion in record labels you know even little dusty record labels that no one knew about now it's time for the Music City Myth. Our listeners submit questions and Evelyn and I try to answer them to the best of our ability. Here's the question. Is Winona Elvis's daughter? I so doubt it that I would be willing to bet $100 on it. Winona's not Elvis's daughter and Ashley's not Elvis's daughter either. And I don't think that uh, Naomi ever had an affair with Elvis. So unless it was immaculate conception, I don't know how it happened. Thanks for listening. You be sure to subscribe and we'll be sure to catch you off guard. So light one up and lighten up. So share and tell your friends. Then rate, review, and subscribe. Don't be quiet about this. We need you to tell everyone because why is someone going to listen to this? No one has any idea who that we are. So it's up to you to get us known. It has to be a viral thing. It has to be a... Uh, you know, word of mouth thing because we're putting our faith in your hands. We are.
For more information on the podcast, please visit www.shadyladiesofmusiccity.com. Shady Ladies of Music City is recorded and produced in Nashville, Tennessee, and is presented by Monument Records. Executive producers are Jason Owen, Shane McAnally, and Katie McCartney. Our producer is Sarah Tahilly. Our theme song is written and performed by Robert Shavers. He is also our engineer and editor.